Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In the early years of the 19th century, former Virginia school teacher James Ogilvy embarked on a lecture tour that took the United States by storm. Born in Scotland, Ogilvy became a renowned orator, packing rooms in urban Philadelphia and rural Kentucky alike. As he crisscrossed the nation, lecturing on topics that spoke to American anxieties about the fate of their young republic, Ogilvy became a major celebrity. Many Americans admired him, some even hated him, as he asked them to look into a mirror to see themselves. On today's show, Dr. Carolyn Eastman joins me to discuss her new book, The Strange Genius of Mr. O, the United States' First Forgotten Celebrity, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2021. Dr. Eastman is a professor of history at the Virginia Commonwealth University, and be sure to check out our show notes to learn how you can get 40% off the cover price of her book. Now, before we get started, I just want to say thanks to my friends and longtime listeners at the Rotary Club of Westlake Village out in California. It was great to see you yesterday, and thanks so much for tuning in as always. And with that, let's unravel the mystery of the strange genius of Mr. O with Dr. Carolyn Eastman. Well, Carolyn, I've been looking forward to talking with you about this book for a long time. I think, what was it, 2017, where we had that conference at Monticello, and fortuitously, we got sat next to each other at dinner, and I was telling you about my work on Scotland and early America, and you were saying, oh, I'm finishing this book on some guy you've never heard of, but you will. That's right. That's right. I remember this. I've been looking forward to talking with you about the finished product since then, but the challenge we've got today is that I don't want to give anything away because it's not a typical academic scholarly book where you're like, well, here's the argument and here's what you should know. But there's a lot of twists and turns in here that we, we're just not going to cover because the reader really should experience that for themselves. I want to start where you begin actually in your introduction. I want to take us to Aberdeen, to the Sir Duncan Rice Library. It's a magnificent place to go, Aberdeen itself. Some people knock on Aberdeen, but actually I kind of like that town. It's, it's really good. And you're in the library and you find this pamphlet that kind of was is uh, revelatory and eye-opening for you in this project. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing there and what you found? Yeah, so I was trying to hunt down information about the family of James Ogilvy, who ultimately immigrated to the United States in the 1790s, became a celebrity known for his eloquence, and I knew very little about his family. I had uncovered some information, especially about his father, who was a Scottish minister and and something of a well-known poet of the 19th century, of the uh, 18th century. And along the way, one of the references in a biography of his father talked about his son, James, having written something called the Ogilviad. And there is only one copy available in the world at a library, and that's in Aberdeen. And so I got to Aberdeen, opened up this pamphlet, and discovered that it's a poem written between two college boys, boys who were 16, 17 years old at the time, um, in which they sort of resolve a fight that they had on the college grounds. And it's this wonderfully delightful, funny, insulting poem that reveals all kinds of things about 18th century college boys and their pretensions to verbal dexterity. And it was actually a little bit hard to figure out because it's the title, the Ogilviad, of course, makes reference to James Ogilvy, but you might be thinking it sounds like the Iliad or mm. another great sort of heroic tale of adventure. But in fact, what they were doing was innovating on Alexander Pope's great satirical 18th century poem, The Dunciad. And The Dunciad is a poem in which Pope made fun of his critics. He called them a, con a confederacy of dunces, basically, who had no taste and no literary know-how. And so what Ogilvy and his college classmate were doing was sort of innovating on Alexander Pope as they attacked each other. It's so much fun. And it actually helped me at a point when I did not know a lot about 
Ogilvy's life before he came to the United States. It, it was really hard to find information about his family and his college days because so many records have been lost and especially, you know, related to his family. So the poem the whole first chapter in the book is structured around the poem and allows the poem to show us different aspects of Ogilvy's life. Everything from the fact that he didn't wash very often to his ratty old clothes that he wore underneath his college gown. So, I mean, the Ogilvy Ed was this poem that no one has really looked at for over a hundred years, and it was just delightful. Yeah, one of the things I didn't expect to learn in this book is a great deal about 19th century hygiene. <laughs> it features very, very prominently. And lack of it. And lack of it. And lack of it. So you go to Aberdeen, you discover this pamphlet and you discover it. I think you had said like no one had checked it out since like 1887 or something, something crazy like that. And I want to learn more about the archival hunt for this guy in a second. But can you give us a short sketch of his life. And I, I realize, again, this is one of those books where we don't want to give out, you know, give away the keys to the kingdoms. But what should we know about this guy so we can kind of think about the challenge of reconstructing his life? And then, as you say, how... His experiences tell us a lot about the early republic in the 19th century. Yeah, he immigrated as a 20-year-old in 1793 from Scotland to Virginia, uh, where he taught school for 15 years. And he happened to teach at a very prestigious series of schools, all-boys schools, where he was mostly prepping these boys for college, um, doing very intensive uh, deep study into all manner of topics that that college boys would have required by the time they arrived, and he built up a good reputation as a as a as a renowned teacher at the time. But it was a grueling and sort of ultimately low paying and low status kind of job. He complained frequently about how little he was paid, and it was m even more than that. Just an exhausting job. I mean, he he speaks, he, he wrote in really actually funny ways about how awful it was. Um, at one point, he said that there were only two things that allowed him to survive all those years of teaching. And one of them was opium. And I, he wasn't being funny. Um, opium is actually a really interesting story in the book. But so after teaching for 15 years, and really experiencing some pretty serious ups and downs, he had discovered along the way that he had a really unusual gift for public speech. He had begun giving lectures in Richmond, Virginia, where he was a teacher for a while. He had also given talks at Monticello um, when he was teaching in the region. He had become, to some extent, close with Thomas Jefferson um, and had actually tutored Jefferson's grandson. And he ultimately in 1808 made a radical decision to abandon teaching and set off on the road as an itinerant orator. So he would travel from town to town. He would, once he arrived at a place, sort of set up shop, he would find a venue where he would give a talk usually at a tavern or maybe a schoolhouse or sometimes a, you know, whatever other sort of space, a church sometimes where he could speak and then sell tickets. And that ultimately became his life for the next 13 years. And there's this sort of interesting story about the way that, I mean, there weren't a lot of itinerant orators at the time. Um, he made his career at first by saying that what he was doing was getting up and speaking about important civic issues that Americans ought to think through. That is, issues like dueling. Dueling was uh, pervasive in the United States in the early 19th century, and many elite people continued to engage in that practice despite some public condemnation. So he would give these talks that sort of unpacked the larger problem of dueling and allowed his audiences to think through the different sides of the issue. 
He also talked about the problem of gambling. He talked about female education. He talked about suicide. And so he had this sort of array of topics that were all on people's minds at the time in the early 19th century. So for the next 13 years, he was really on the road for the most part during that entire time. He traveled all over the U.S., usually multiple times. He, you know, was in Georgia and the District of Maine. He was in Lower Canada. He, he went to Montreal and Quebec. He went out to Kentucky, Tennessee, and the territories of Illinois and Indiana, and ultimately visited 17 of the United States' 19 states, as well as two territories. I mean, it's a remarkable thing in a period when most Americans didn't travel more than about 100 miles from home, you know, in their lifetime. And so eventually he had a variety of ups and downs, scandals and successes, and he wound up deciding to continue his celebrity career in England and Scotland. So in 1817, he left the U.S. and went to England and Scotland to continue there and ultimately died in 1820. So that's the sort of overview of the, the grand arc of his life. But his career was something else. You know, his career was so interesting because it sort of uncovers the way that different Americans engaged with him, the way that they sort of mapped their own needs and anxieties mm -hmm. onto him as a as a sort of flashpoint figure. And and so I ultimately focus, I think, a little bit more on his career than I really do on trying to understand him, you know, trying to psychologize a person mm -hmm. who, like him. James Ogilvy, as you state uh, in this book, was really the United States' first celebrity and begs the question of uh, how did you come across this guy in the first place and, and what got you interested in this topic? I had actually stumbled across him when I was writing my first book. My first book was on oratory and print and the ways that ordinary American women and men interacted with those mediums of communication. And Ogilvy was sort of hard to avoid because he appears in so many people's diaries and letters. People talk about him, make reference to him, discuss having gone to see him. And so I think in my first book, he got maybe a paragraph. But after I finished the book and was honestly, onto an entirely different project, I stumbled across him again. And using the incredible sort of digital access to a vast array of early American material, I started to just sort of, you know, do a little idle research on him again, and found a much more interesting story than I thought existed. So I essentially rediscovered him and started putting him together. And the more I worked on him, the more I discovered that this isn't just a funny story about an eccentric man with bad hygiene. It's not just <laughs> a story about celebrity, um, which I'll talk about in a second, but it's actually a story about the early United States. It's a story about the ways that early American, early 19th century men and women found themselves really riveted to this dynamic figure who answered needs at the time. Mm. And, and that to me, then moved it from being maybe a project that ultimately resulted in an article or something, which was my initial intention, to developing a book, a very slim book, and it ultimately became a regular-sized <laughs> book. So anyway, that's how I discovered him. Well, that raises the question of biography then. You know, you think of a traditional biography that traces the, the arc of someone's life, and it's almost exclusively about that person. But it sounds like you made a decision to in a way kind of write a dual biography, both about Ogilvy, but also about the United States in a formative moment in its history. That's right. And, and it was really intentional, in part because of the way that I was trying to understand how celebrity functioned at that time. I mean, celebrity was relatively new in the United States. I, and I should say, of course, we think of other 
really famous people. We can think of the evangelist George Whitfield. We can mm-hmm. think about George Washington, you know, who had this whole array of visual material that sort of flowered around him and celebrated him. We can think of great military generals and so on. But Ogilvy had no sort of pre-existing career on which to base his celebrity. He attained his celebrity by this career of public speaking, his eloquence, his, his power to get up in front of people and give these sort of riveting and explosive talks. So I became interested in writing this sort of historical biography or biographical history, I'm not sure what it is, in a way that constantly kept not just the sort of eccentric and an interesting figure of Ogilvy in front of our eyes, but tried to understand where he fit into this period between the 1790s and the 1820s in this period of time when I think a lot of us sort of skip over it, you know, in our mm-hmm. teaching and our other our understanding of that period. And yet Ogilvy was was Uh, sort of realizing this great career at a really formative moment. And so it became very interesting to me to understand why men and women paid so much attention to him and granted him so much social power. What are some of the things that Americans are concerned about in this period? You kind of alluded to some of them with the topics that Ogilvy is talking about. And I I want to get into the performative aspect because that, that really fascinates me. But What's causing anxiety in early America? There seems to be a lot of anxiety at this point that that Ogilvy finds a way to address in his rhetorical career. That's right. And I think the first one, you have to say, was Americans' concerns about the survival of the republic. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of us feel that the revolution had brought everyone together and that it was all United States all the time after that. But actually, when you start to look at the early United States, you see this prevailing concern that the United States might just fall apart, that there were so many internal divisions and 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 fraught jealousies between religions and regions and over politics, over all aspect of religion and so on. And so there's this way in which that anxiety sort of does form the basis from which Ogilvy emerges. So so Ogilvy, I would never say that everyone loved him, although lots of people did. He also provoked a lot of concern. People worried that he might be a demagogue or that he might be secretly advocating for things that they disapproved of. For example, uh, he was a an avowed atheist uh, mm-hmm. during a time when that was a very unusual position to have. And American Christians were very concerned about the specter of atheism and deism really dividing the country and leading it to ruin on a, you know, on a real, but also sort of larger, larger level. And yet Ogilvy also wanted through his public performances to bring people into a room, people all across the spectrum and have them think together about important issues. And so there was something about this performative dynamism that he created in his lecture halls as he tried to work through all the different sides of an issue on stage and had this electrical effect on his audiences. People found that to be important, whether or not they ultimately agreed with one another about the issue at hand. And so I think that in bringing people together to to think through a problem, he was modeling a certain kind of way that the United States could survive. I think that that's one of the reasons why his performances became so important to people. And, you know, ultimately, he, he had begun by saying that you should come hear his talks because he had a gift for eloquence, but also that he was uh, talking through these important civic issues. But ultimately, he tended to say that people should come to hear him so that they would understand the power of oratory in a republic. 
And so that advocacy for oratory itself as a medium had really long lasting effects in, uh, I mean, he may have been forgotten ultimately, but, <laughs> but when you think about the development of the Lyceum system starting in the 1820s, when you think about the Chautauqua movement in the later 19th century, when you think about how Americans came to really glom onto the important uh, congressional oratory of Daniel Webster and Henry Clay and other great figures, Abraham Lincoln, you can really see how important oral culture uh, oratory became to 19th century America. As I was listening to you talk, I was thinking about our own modern age where we have any number of political pundits on TV screaming at us from you know both liberal and conservative perspectives. And that world of oratory has been lost. There are a few people that we might classify as orators today, but no more Daniel Webster, no more Abraham Lincoln, no more Ogilvy's. How does Ogilvy hone that craft? Because it strikes me is that you've really got to practice to become the kind of persuasive orator that he was. And it's not simply just delivering a speech. It, it's a whole bag of tricks that you have to employ to move the audience and to persuade them to your position. On the first issue of whether we have just utterly lost this culture, I think that you're right. We no longer live in a culture oriented so much to the spoken word and the performance of oratory per se. But I do think that there are modern day analogies. I mean, I'm thinking about things like poetry slams, mm. but also TED Talks. I mean, think about how significant TED Talks are. Or, I mean, I often liken Ogilvy to a figure maybe a little bit like Oprah or Neil deGrasse Tyson. I mean, people who, again, want to bring us together to educate us a little bit, but also to have us think through difficult issues. Those aren't perfect analogies by any means, but I don't think it's utterly been lost. Think, for example, about how much attention a figure like Barack Obama got for his oratory. Mm -hmm. He truly had a gift for public speech. So I don't think it's totally lost. Well, you know, actually, I hadn't thought about it that way before. And it, and it makes sense. And, you know, the performative aspect of the, and I've been watching it, Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And, and there is a really performative aspect to that that I hadn't considered. And I know sometimes you, you read... Uh, Daniel Webster's Liberty and Union speech in the Senate in the 1850s. And you sort of think about, well, God, what would it have been like to have heard that? And I guess there is, there are probably modern analogies that I was just missing. Um, I don't know why I want Daniel Webster to come back so bad, but that, that's, that's a, I just would, that's the speech I would have loved to have heard. And just that stunned silence in the Senate after it, after he had finished. So how does Ogilvy hone his craft? How does he become this persuasive orator? One of the things I really try to do in the book is explain how it was that this intense dedication to orality, to public speaking, was infused in all aspects of, of life at that time, including in schools. And so the fact that Ogilvy was a teacher and himself had gone to college in Scotland meant that he had been practicing public speaking for a long time. Because in this period, you know, before teachers had grades, the way that they would assess this success or failure of their students was to have them perform their lessons that students learned early on to memorize and recite in public, not just within the school, but also on a sort of periodic basis before public audiences. They would speak before their community, their parents and other people. So Ogilvy really did develop a talent for public speaking, not just through his own education, but then as an educator over time. And more broadly, Americans in this fragile republic were trying to figure out, again, how the republic might survive. And they often looked to the classical examples of Greece and Rome, thinking that one of the crucial ways in which uh, the republics of Greece and Rome survived 
and thrived was by having public leaders with exceptional gifts for oratory, mm. who in their persuasive orations would try to work through a problem and model and discuss a, a way forward for the public to go. Having read those great classical orations by Cicero and Seneca and Demosthenes over and over as a teacher, I think Ogilvy had sort of imbibed the the format and the phrasing and truly the lessons that those orators sort of set up for for designing oratory and performing oratory. Yeah, I think that he absolutely developed his style within a larger culture where people were very concerned about having public leaders with a gift for speech. I mean, even when you look at the Second Great Awakening and the emergence of all of these incredibly dynamic public speakers who were evangelizing, you know, Christianity, an enthusiastic form of Christianity to their listeners, they too had very carefully practiced their style, their ability to memorize, their ability to innovate while on the stand. And and so this was a culture in which people were hearing public speech on a regular basis in church, outside of church, in uh, courthouses, in congressional houses at the state level, as well as the national level. It was becoming very important. One of the fun things about your book is you have a lot of illustrations. And one I kept going back to were the illustrations of how to actually pace about the stage and how to how to emote physically so that the audience who may not be able to hear you in the back of the room can get a sense of the emotion you're trying to convey. And so I was taking notes for my own lecturing style, but can you take us into one of these lecture halls and say I ponied up 50 cents for a ticket to see Mr. Ogilvy? What would that have looked like from the audience's seat. When he was speaking, he always arranged for a small stage to be built that was a couple of feet high so that when he was performing, people could see his full body, right? So that they could see all, not just his gestures or his facial expressions, but his full physical postures. And those, like you say, were really important. I think one of the things that is often alienating to us when we look back at oratory of the time is the extent to which they had a whole vocabulary of gesture. If you were speaking of, of God or the heavens, you would put a hand on your chest and raise the other one up to the sky. Uh, you would sometimes beat your chest if you were expressing rage. You would do all kinds of things that seem almost cartoonishly exaggerated or caricatured. But imagine Ogilvy often spoke in front of audiences that had 200 people, 400 people, 600 people. You might not be able to hear mm -hmm. everything he was saying if you were in a room that crowded. And yet, if you could see him sort of physically performing the speech as well as speaking it, you could probably tell whether it was eloquent or not. One of the things that I think we often, you know, I, I often get the question, are these gestures sort of like the exaggerated facial expressions of silent film, for example, mm -hmm. you know, where they, mm -hmm. they, they open their eyes in this exaggerated way, or they put their hand to their mouth or something. It is a little bit like that except that with, I think if you watch silent film a lot, the cartoonishness of those gestures really fade away and you start to enter into the whole world of how those gestures make up for different kinds of lack of the spoken word. Silent film is very careful to sort of reveal very little dialogue, and they let the actors do most of the work. And I think that in the early 19th century, something similar was going on. That whole vocabulary of gesture and posture and movement and so on was a really important way to round out an entire performance. And one of the things I find amazing is that he would have been 
doing this and memorizing his own speeches, practicing his own speeches in ways that didn't just require getting the words right, getting the ideas in order, he would have also had to develop this whole repertoire of movement and and explosive, appealing kinds of performance on stage. My conference presentations are going to be so much better after. <laughs> Aren't they, exactly. though? I'm going to think about it a lot more. You say that Ogilvy is the United States' first celebrity. I guess that begs the question of what does celebrity mean in this period? There's no Twitter. There's no Kardashians. What does it mean to be a celebrity in 19th century America? We often think about celebrity now as a kind of regrettable aspect of modern day culture. But more and more scholars have found celebrity, the phenomenon of celebrity stretching back to the 18th century, even earlier in some cases. And I think that the way that I use their scholarship and then develop this idea around Ogilvy is that he was a little bit different from, as I say, people like George Whitfield or George Washington in that the the thing that really lofted him to celebrity was the press and the public paying so much attention to him and giving him such accolades that he seemed to become in the eyes of the public the most eloquent figure that the United States had ever seen and i think there's something really interesting about that so he had no military successes he had no claim to be a religious divine he was simply lofted on the shoulders of the public celebrity looked different in the united states than it would look later at this period because for example there were no images of him circulating so whereas in england if you had been a great stage actor or if you were say the great british poet lord byron you would have a whole array of prints of your face i mean byron was notoriously good looking and so you know a lot of people wanted to buy prints of how beautiful he was um how dangerous he was but Ogilvy didn't find that in the United States. The United States's print culture was a little bit more primitive, but there were newspapers. Newspapers simply attached themselves to Ogilvy's star and reported on him whether or not he was appearing locally. They would, they would talk about him and his successes hundreds of miles away, or they would speculate that maybe a popular song going around had been written by Ogilvy, because who else could have put together these great lines? And so I think that what was going on was an increasing way of the press simply associating eloquence with Ogilvy, sort of in a direct one-to-one ratio with it. You know, if you wanted to talk about great speech, you talked about Ogilvy. Is there Is there a difference between celebrity and fame in this period? Oh, that's a great question. I'm not sure I have a great answer to that, Jim. There's a fine line between fame and celebrity. The difference might be the intensity of print attention to a figure Hmm. that that fame had been a phenomenon that had existed for centuries, but that once print culture became integral to the making and unmaking of celebrity, that that marked the difference. And so, for example, today, when we think of celebrity, we think about people sort of jettisoned up to, you know, the heights of celebrity by things like TV and the internet and uh, newspapers and tabloid magazines and on and on. And I think something similar, although, of course, in a slightly different context was going on for someone like Ogilvy. In the United States in the early 19th century, newspaper culture had become intense enough by that period, and probably not before, to create celebrities like Ogilvy. And you said that the newspapers helped him a great deal and and actually helped spread his story far beyond where he might have been and, and possibly where he was going. Were there other unexpected ways that newspaper culture in the 19th century helped him? And conversely, were there ways that it harmed him? Yeah, because I think newspaper attention, newspaper accolades could be a flimsy thing keeping him aloft in the eyes of the public. 
And so one of the things that becomes really important to the story is tracking the points when scandals did erupt around him, when he maybe made a mistake on stage or when he was attacked by someone who really hated him. Newspapers then often became a place where these concerns were played out. What's interesting, though, about this, and I think says a lot about the early 19th century, is that Ogilvy might run into a scandal that would seem to really, truly damage his career in, say, Philadelphia. And yet then he would leave town, go 90 miles up the road to New York, and begin again to give talks and so on. And that scandal wouldn't follow him. One of the things that I think is so unique about that time period is that the newspapers in each different region often did report on things going on around Ogilvy, different kinds of concerns about him or criticism, but they were all different things that they focused on. So one scandal in Philadelphia would not haunt him over the course of his career later on. And so his career has this really interesting roller coaster kind of appearance to it in that he would move from success to scandal to success as if those scandals or really, you know, horrifying moments never, never really mattered in the end. There, there's no Twitter to go back and dig up his old tweets that would come back to haunt him. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, and so people in Boston would look at, a, you know, some kind of a scandal going on in New York City, and they just think, well, that's, a, you know, that's just about New York. That's not about us. We're going to make up our own minds. And sure enough, they would. Tell me a little bit about the archival hunt for this guy, if you would. I think I think you mentioned in the introduction that there's no sort of great collection of his personal papers, you know, not in the order that you would like if you were writing a biography of somebody. So you you had to really go to a lot of different places. And was it instinct? How did you how did you sort of know to track him in different places and figure out, you know, that, that some random I mean, there's like a little girl's diary that has a mention of him. And then, like, how did you how did you find half this stuff? I was just I was like checking your footnotes like what? This was honestly one of the most fun aspects of this project. You know, he was a traveler, so he spent all of his years on the road, and that meant that he didn't collect his papers. So it's really depressing that I don't have the letters that he received, um, copies of the letters that he wrote to other people. But because he was well-known enough, a huge number of his letters have been saved, but they're scattered in other people's papers. So. So I did go to every place he went and went to local archives, state libraries, state historical societies, local historical societies, looking at personal papers. And I just, you know, I think there's something that you ultimately start to develop when you're working on a project, when you just have a nose for a person's papers, and you just know you're going to find something. I mean, I will say it was needle in a haystack kind of work a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. But I would very often get to say the Kentucky Historical Society. And I would know that certain kinds of figures would have been likely to have sprang for the tickets that would have taken them to an Ogilvy performance. Mm -hmm. But then other times I found just really wonderful accidental things. So for example, when I was at the Filson Historical Society in Louisville, Kentucky, I was not finding anything. And then I found a whole cache of his actual speeches speeches that were not attributed to him. So they were in, they were attributed to somebody else but they were written in Ogilvy's handwriting and had titles, you know, that matched the titles of some of the talks that he gave. And I was absolutely floored by this because he never published his speeches, except for some very early ones that he gave sort of political speeches um, during the 1790s and very, very early 19th century. So it was really helpful because then I was able to see his thought process as he developed those talks. 
So yeah, the uh, <laughs> the hunt for his materials was was long and meant that ultimately this book took longer to write than one would have loved to get it done. But it also meant that I was able to visit a lot of places and go through a lot of people's papers, finding out more about that early 19th century milieu in which he sort of thrived. When you decided to take the next step from, say, simply just doing an article to actually doing a full-fledged book, was part of pulling those threads and finding stuff in just strange places part of the reason you kept going? I think there were a few things that really kept me going. And I will say that one of them was having his autobiography. So, so in 1816, he decided to write a book, which is a whole story unto itself. Mm -hmm. But he also included in the book this rambling, crazy autobiography that is... It affects a kind of modesty, but is transparently immodest. It, it's a, a story of great success by someone with grandly ambitious ideas about becoming known as not just a great speaker, but a great philosopher. It's a terrible piece of writing, but it's also a goldmine for knowing how he was thinking at that particular time and how he wanted to characterize his own path through life. I think for me, having that, that nutty autobiography to work with, along with these fragments and letters scattered all over the place and letters of other people talking about going to see him perform or having had maybe a kind of weird experience with him or something, sort of all together painted a picture of the early United States and the, its obsession with this crazy character. And so I think it was ultimately that balance between the fragments and the archival hunt and the materials that were more complete. They were more um, fulsome in his own writing. Well, let's talk about writing for a moment because I'm wondering if there's a relationship between your interest in rhetoric and oratory and eloquence and the way in which you actually approach putting a sentence on the page is that is there a relationship there that you see oh that's a great question i will have to say i'm not sure that that is the case but i have i have become more attentive to the difference between written and spoken speech and written speech can often get garbled. It's really true. And I find there's something deeply satisfying in a clear, direct sentence, as opposed to those long, rambling academic sentences. You know, when I was writing this book, I, I was really trying to experiment with different styles of writing, trying to find the right sort of writer's voice for this book, for this story. And it took a while, as my editors and my friends who read multiple drafts of everything will tell you. But I ultimately landed on what I think is a much more approachable style of writing than a typical academic book. And I felt that it somehow emerged organically from the material. Ogilvy was not an academic. He was not putting forward all kinds of deeply intellectual ideas. He was instead trying to bring ideas to the people. And, and I had wanted for a long time to write a book that, you know, that my parents would like to read. Mm -hmm. My parents being people who like to read, they just don't like to read academic books. I wanted to write a book that my students would like to read. Again, my students don't appreciate deeply academic sort of tomes. So when I was writing this book, I thought a lot about not just developing sentences and paragraphs that were approachable and interesting to people, but I also wanted to create a real narrative arc in the book where you could see the entire narrative of his life, but you could also dive into 
interesting and sort of thorny issues having to do with his life. So, you know, I pause in some ways in the third chapter in the book to talk about his opium habit mm -hmm. and go into a lot of details on a more thematic level about the role of opium in early 19th century culture the idea of addiction and how it didn't really exist at the time. And, um, and then later in the book too, I'll pause to explore other aspects of what was going on at that time so that readers can both dive deep into certain kinds of topics while also connecting it to a larger story about the early United States. So it sounds like you had a broader audience in mind from the get-go, or at least it was clear as you were writing that that was the best way to go and to actually write a book that, as you say, your folks could read. And I, I think I told you in an email, like, this isn't a criticism of, of academic presses because it's a question of audience and, and who you're writing for and who those books are aimed at. But, you know, I can count on one hand the number of academic books I would feel comfortable giving to my folks, and yours is one of them. So I'm wondering then your sense of the tension in the guild right now over questions of accessibility versus that sort of traditional academic book where you've you've got to hammer the argument half to death and the library will buy a copy of that book but most other people won't i'm not sure i have a really grand theory about this tension, but I do think that ultimately the academy is a big tent that we can have all kinds of different writing. If I were writing a different kind of book, I would have a different kind of voice in it because there are times when we are developing difficult ideas that that draw on a large corpus of other difficult ideas, it's going to be hard to make that approachable and interesting to a wide audience. And yet for a book like this, because there's so much of a narrative to it, because it's oriented around this eccentric and dynamic figure, because there are sort of strange twists and turns, I found myself writing this book in a way that my first book is not written in this style. And so I do think that we should be more welcoming of a wide range of approaches. And Honestly, I'd like to see more yet, you know, of mm -hmm. different kinds of approaches. I'd like to see people experimenting with really short books to see how sort of unfolding something that's longer than an article, but not quite, you know, 70,000 words mm -hmm. could be a compelling short piece of something to read. I love reading everything from The New Yorker to mystery novels. And I often find that reading other people's styles and other people's genre conventions is useful for me to think about different ways of writing for both academic and mm -hmm. broader audiences. But let me say, it is not easy to try to do both because, and this was something I ran into quite a bit in the writing of this book, because academic writing does have certain kinds of expectations. I mean, if, if I want a book to be read by a graduate class, I need to have an argument. There, mm -hmm. you know, that is just a sort of expected aspect of an academic book. Grad students are not going to pick up on an argument that's much, much more subtle. You know, it's hard to both have an argument and be focused on narrative at the same time. It's not an easy needle to thread. Who were you reading while you were writing this book? Were you reading other biographies? Were you reading for fun, like, as you say, The Atlantic, we're trying to figure out different linguistic constructions that you were interested in and that you could bring to this project? I'll tell you, the, the historian I read over and over while I was writing this book was Laurel Ulrich, reading oh, A Midwife's yeah. Tale mm -hmm. again and again. I still think of that as just a model of historical writing. And it's such a pleasure. One of the things I especially love in that book is the way that she explores the later years of Martha Ballard's life, the midwife, when Martha gets sulky and cranky as an old woman. And because I too was trying to write about a difficult person who had some sort of 
less appealing aspects of his personality. Yeah, that was that was just a model. Um, but I also read the novel The Sympathizer by Viet uh, Nguyen, which is an amazing story, again, about a very ambivalent and difficult and colorful and funny character at the center of the book. A man who likewise was positioned between two cultures in multiple ways. I had found ultimately that literary fiction was a really rich place for me to explore how people thought about developing narrative and developing characters at the same time. I'm going to check that one out. It's been a while since I've read Midwife's Tale, but I'm going to definitely uh, pick up the book you just recommended there as well. Now that this book is done, are you going back to the project you had started and you thought that was going to be your next project before uh, this one uh, took a decidedly different turn? Or are you on to something else right now? I have two things going on at the same time and we'll see which one wins. But so I have to admit that one of the things I started doing last spring when the COVID pandemic really got underway was looking at the yellow fever epidemics of the the 1790s, specifically in New York City, because I had happened to keep a digital copy of a diary of a young doctor who experienced two epidemics in New York City in 1795 and 1798, epidemics that really changed his life in the end. And, you know, at that point, I had been the kind of person who I did not want to re-watch the movie Contagion. I did not want to reread The Plague by Camus. I did not want to sort of indulge in that kind of um, entertainment. But I did find that reading about this young doctor's experience during the yellow fever epidemics was incredibly cathartic. And so I've been I've been writing about New York in the 1790s. I'm hoping also to keep alive the larger project I was working on before Ogilvy sort of ran me over, which is about visual culture and gender in the 18th century, the sort of the visual literature of travel and looking at the the people, the the bodies of people encountered by travelers uh, around the Atlantic world. But we'll see. Yellow fever seems really timely at the moment. So we'll see how that goes. Well, no matter the project, please do come back and see us when, well, when one of them wins, and then you can talk about the other one when you finish that one too. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks, Carolyn. This has been great. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is Witch's Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your favorite podcasts. To find out more, please check us out at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.